From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. I am truly sorry for I accept responsibility for this. I'm at the top of DOT. An apology, but still not much clarity from the head of the state's transportation department over what went wrong and what happens next with the Washington Bridge, even after Rideout Director Peter Alviti faced nearly four hours of questioning by lawmakers over the crisis. This week on Newsmakers, a post-mortem with someone who had a front row seat for the hearing, House Minority Leader Michael Chippendale. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi, and we welcome Rhode Island House Minority Leader Mike Chippendale. Good to have you in the program. Good morning, guys. So, as I said there, DOT Director Peter Alviti, along with two others, but primarily him, were questioned for nearly four hours on Monday. You were one of the lawmakers uh, who took part. I guess, you know, overall, what was your big takeaway from the hearing? The, the, the format, first of all, was, it was difficult because we had so many members. It was a joint, joint hearing. Right. House, um, I think 27 of you, right? I, I, I believe it was around 27, yeah. And, That's uh, a lot of lawmakers. It, it was. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with oversight in the format that we have in the House. It, it seems to work well, but but that was a little bit cumbersome. Um, but as, as, as Meaning a, you would have liked to have had more time... Mike Chippendale to question uh, the speaker because, uh, excuse me, the director, but because there were so many people. Yeah, I think, I think all of the members felt, felt that way. Or, well, they didn't, I don't think that. We, we, we shared the, the same sentiment. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's difficult when you're trying to figure things out on the fly to be uh, just given one opportunity uh, without appearing to monopolize time. So it's, it's a tough balance in that case. But uh, how did the hearing itself go? It was frustrating. You know, for, for uh, a lot of us on the panel, we were trying to get answers, and we didn't feel like we were. Um, I, I think that uh, oversight can only really be effective when there is a, a, a yes and no sort of a back and forth with, with actual people who are on that issue, whether it's on the front line, under the bridge, wherever, whatever the issue is. Well, since you brought that up, why don't we give people a quick 25-second flavor sure. of what that, uh, what that felt like in your questioning of, of Peter Alvidi, and then we'll come back. Take a listen to this section of the oversight hearing. The reports that we provided you with are the reports that we get. They're not altered in any way. They're not edited by DOT Director, staff. all due respect, you just told me that four different companies that inspect made these reports right. copy and pasted information. Correct, but that's them. That's not us at DOT. We so don't DOT alter the reports in any way. They, Excellent. They fill in the reports. That was the House and Senate oversight hearing on Monday, and uh, all of us in Target 12 watched the entire thing. Mm. I, you know, I, I would say your questioning of the director is probably uh, the sharpest or the most uh, forceful, and you just told us it doesn't sound like you were very satisfied with the answers you were getting from Peter Alvidi. No, no, no I, I, I frankly don't think there were a lot of answers given. I, I think there were responses, but they, they didn't address the question. And, and anyone can go on to the House uh, website and watch the oversight hearing. And I think anyone who follows through the, the, the entire hearing will draw the same conclusion. Uh, there was a lot was said, but nothing was addressed. Very little was addressed. Um, which is, I think, why you saw that frustration from me, because by the time it got to me, it was probably an hour and a half into the hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
it just seemed like we were hearing the same thing over and over again. You know, I, I, I led the roadworks program. I fixed all of these bridges. I mean, it, that was the response we got from the director on every single question. That's frustrating when you're just trying to get answers to fun, foundational questions so that you can work into the more important things, which I wasn't able to get into. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult to sort of get that going. I was trying to uh, ask questions of the engineer from the company. Uh, and each time I did, the director interjected and answered for him with, I've repaired so many bridges in, this, in so many years. And he stated it repeatedly, okay, that's important to point out, but we don't need to hear it nine times. And leader, you have an interesting perspective because you're a Republican, but you do have a working relationship with the Democratic uh, leadership. Sure. You have uh, the rideout director. He comes out of the laborers' union, which has enormous influence on Smith Hill with the Democratic Party. What is your feeling about how much the Democratic leadership in the two chambers really wants to do, like, tough oversight versus the show of oversight, but make sure you don't damage anybody here? Yeah, uh, I can say that at no point uh, did uh, leadership reach out to me and express any guardrails as far as where I could go. Uh, I was not throttled in any respect at all. Did you, so you listen to all that, and I agree, I had the same feeling that there were so many times they said, well, we don't know that, we're waiting for a report, we need the inspection, we need the forensic analysis, but listen, the tone that the director took uh, made me feel like they seem to think the bridge is probably a goner. I'm trying not to get over my skis there, but he was talking about it almost as a bridge that is no longer useful, not a bridge that maybe will reopen in two months because it's all turned out fine. What's your thinking right now on whether the bridge might be salvageable, and do you have any feel in the legislature for the cost of fixing it if, it, if it's a goner? I have absolutely no idea whether that bridge will need to be replaced. Um, I, I certainly have feelings that if it's this uh, badly damaged, perhaps it needs to be replaced. Uh, and I think the, f the focus needs to remain on the safety. It has to be done safely. And that may take longer. And that's going to really be devastating to Rhode Island. You guys sit through it all the time. Um, thankfully, I don't have to. But it's, mm -hmm. it's hurting commerce. It's hurting health care. It's hurting education. It's hurting every aspect of our lives. Uh, we want it up. We want it built. The money, uh, just yesterday, you know, you, I think you folks heard the, the Speaker of the House address that, that question. Uh, we don't know where the money will come from. We don't even know what the money is. There may be an 80-20 federal match. There may not be any federal match. It depends on what all of these analyses and, and the professionals uh, who are looking at all the materials come back and say, this is what has to be done. At that point, we'll know. Governor Dan McKee has uh, defended and stood by DOT Director Peter Alvidi, uh, do you share that assessment, or do you think it's it's time to consider him stepping down? I've stated from from the beginning that this isn't a time to be asking for heads to roll. This is a time to be asking questions where we can figure out what happened. How did we get to where we are? Too early then. Far your, too early. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's the world of politics. Heads roll in politics, but uh, uh, Director Alvidi is under the administration. He is not under the legislature. So so the executive will do what the executive does. Uh, that's not what, what I'm, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for anybody's heads, head to roll because that doesn't fix the problem on the bridge. The, fixing the problem on the bridge is where we should be focused, and I think that's uh, uh, where everyone needs to be focused. Uh, one quick question before we go to break here. As you point out, we're in East Providence. This channel 12 <laughs> yeah. is East Providence, so we are directly impacted, and we certainly hear from our viewers all the time. Um, you're, you represent Foster. Yeah. Are you hearing from your constituents yeah. about it? Yeah. You are. Interestingly, uh, you know, for years, I drove from Foster to Warren every day back and forth. Okay. My commute was, and it, it could be a tough commute under the On best a good of circumstances. Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm extremely sympathetic to anyone who has to do that uh, all day. But yes, my... Um, 
my wife, in fact, has a doctor on, on this side. So we've had to come across a couple of times already. And I have a lot of uh, uh, constituents who do work on, on the other side of the bridge. Um, so yeah, I, I do hear it. If you're not doing it every day, I don't think it's as much of an of a in-your-face, everyday reminder of how difficult it is. Um, but there are certainly people all over this state that are dealing with it. All right, we're going to take a break. Our guest is House Minority Leader Mike Chippendale. When we come back, the GOP's priorities in 2024. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. This is Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is Rhode Island House Minority Leader Mike Chippendale. Uh, leader, in your response to the governor's state of the state, you talked about your concern for the healthcare industry, yeah. particularly hospitals in Rhode Island. And it, it struck me that you echoed a lot of Attorney General Peter Narona's bullet points, if you will, on the issue. You said, quote, Republicans call for a long overdue adjustment to our Medicaid reimbursement rate. How yeah. much? Uh, you know, we have to be competitive with Mass and Connecticut. What we see is all, all of the positions in healthcare are to a, to a level fundamentally supported by Medicaid reimbursements. Um, all of our hospitals, all of our healthcare uh, salaries are, are based on that. We're losing our uh, healthcare workers to our neighbors because it's 20 minutes to get to Massachusetts or Connecticut from just about anywhere in Rhode Island. So if you can make 25% more working in a different state that's only 20 minutes away, you're going to. We're seeing that. I now. get the problem. My, my question is, all right, so how much money do you, state money needs to go toward Medicaid reimbursement in your assessment? So right, right now, uh, and the Speaker of the House is working on this as well because we've come to the conclusion that we have to be competitive. Uh, we don't know what the figure is that will make us competitive. Uh, that will come out of House uh, f fiscal staff, uh, and it will probably be part of the House's version of the budget because I think we all universally at this point recognize without that competitiveness with our neighbors, we're going to continue to lose practitioners. And that's what's been hurting everyone so much. But, and respectfully, Leader, you in the same speech talked about the budget has gotten way too big, $14 yep. billion. Some of that's federal money, but not all of it. Medicaid's already the biggest part of the budget. Absolutely. You, like the Democratic leaders, are talking about adding even more to that part of the budget. So. You know, well, then where do you want to see cuts to offset it since you don't want the budget yeah. to be growing at the top line? So the, the state's budget is like a cruise ship. You, you can't stop it on a dime. You can't turn <laughs> it on a dime. And the r reckless spending that has brought us to where we are, and it's easy for me to say because I'm in the minority. So the, the reckless spending that we've seen all along the way is not going to be turned off like a light switch. We have to instead address the approach we take. And that approach is to spend less money when we're doing the budgeting. The speaker talks all the time, and this drives, unfortunately, a lot of what we see in the budget, uh, all the asks that, that are coming in. And of course, there are asks coming in, because whatever it is that a legislator wants usually needs funding. Um, but we have to stop spending the way that we do. And that, that sort of folds into uh, one of our priorities, which is the inspector general. Because if we can get rid of waste, one, one, that will solve so many problems. One of the things uh, in business that you do when, when times are tough, you either have to increase your prices or, or lower your expenses, or become more efficient by spending the same amount but more efficiently and getting more out of it. We need to adopt that approach in the state. Find the waste, find the spending Wouldn't that is Wouldn't that be an expansion of government and an inspector general office? Well, I mean. Absolutely, but if I told you right now, here's a dollar bill. If you give me a dollar bill, I'll give you 21 back. Would you, would you engage and in you that? And you would guarantee one to 21 ratio <laughs> of an IG? I will, I will point to the federal IGs who, who have that okay. ratio and say, if we even get a $2 back for every dollar, we're still doubling our money. So absolutely, I would. I would absolutely guarantee you that you would save money. I want 
to ask you about uh, another thing you've been speaking out about, and it was in that the speech Tim referenced, the Act on Climate Law. Yeah. This was a very aggressive law to decarbonize Rhode Island that passed in 2021. Um, you've been saying all along you think it's overly costly, Those the mandates yeah. are not achievable. I know we have plenty of viewers who are concerned about climate change, Absolutely. coastal state, etc. What's your case to someone who's worried about the issue, but maybe is listening, why they should be open to changes, even though they do prioritize climate change yeah. as a policy? And so climate change as an issue is very different from the act on climate to me. Uh, this isn't about climate change. This isn't about whether or not there is or what the effects of climate change are. This is the effects of what this policy are. And those effects are devastating. I got more phone calls uh, last week when folks got their uh, electricity bills of it's gone up $400, it's gone up $200, it's gone up $100, whatever it is. Universally, our uh, electricity prices are skyrocketing. So I have legislation which will be coming out very soon which takes the act on climate and introduces pragmatism because it was completely built on idealistic goals and then given to an unelected group of people to figure out how those goals are achieved. That's not the way to run the state. We can't have everyone in, in this state electrify their houses at great costs when electricity <laughs> rates rise every single time. There's a, a rate increase, they go up so much, and it's because of the uh, demands that we put on the, uh, the energy company to, as to where they can purchase their energy from. We're making them purchase more and more renewable sources, which we do not have here. We have to procure them, and they are more expensive. All right, we have about a minute left. Uh, in our interview with you, and I look, you're one of the leaders of the state Republican Party, so I, I do want to ask you about the presidential election. Um, I actually don't know. Have you endorsed Trump or Nikki Haley? No, I, I don't typically endorse uh, on, on that level. Who do you want? Uh, who do I want? Uh, I don't want Joe Biden. And, and uh, I that's think not what I, I, we, no. everybody on the planet knows you don't want Joe Biden. <laughs> I, my question is, who do you want for the Republican nominee for president? Uh, you know what? I'm going to support whoever it is. And I, I know it sounds like a cop-out, but it really is. I am, yeah, I am so cold on both of them. <laughs> neither one of them really gives me... You mean uh, Trump and Haley? Yeah. Neither one of them really gives me a, a, a warm feeling that uh, we're going to get very far. So it, it's a little disheartening. I didn't want to see 19 people, uh, you know, being, mm -hmm. being like we did uh, initially. Um, but two, and, and two who are really... It's like the lesser of two evils, in my opinion. Um, I, I, I can't in, get behind someone and, and, and support uh, if I don't believe them, but I can uh, oppose the other side very easily for obvious reasons. And, and if that's a cop-out, I'm going to wear it as, as, a, as a badge, <laughs> uh, I'm, unfortunately. That's sincerely how I feel. Uh, I appreciate the honesty. House Minority <laughs> Leader Mike uh, Chippendale, thanks for joining us Thank on the program. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. When we come back, a pretty brutal national headline on the Pawtucket Soccer Stadium. We have a reporter's roundtable. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. We've acknowledged that it's safety first, and certainly yes, we always. have about, you know, on the House side, about 15,000 constituents each, and on the Senate side, about 30,000 constituents yep. each, yep. and certainly their safety is important to us as it is to you. That's not, that's, when I, when I, when I wake up every day and I go to sleep every night, that's all that's on my mind. I believe that. 
An emotional write-out director, Peter Alvedi, at an oversight hearing on Monday lasted nearly four hours. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. This is Ted Nisi. We're joined by Target 12 investigator Eli Sherman for a reporter's roundtable. Gentlemen, let's start with the Washington Bridge oversight hearing. We all watched it in the Target 12 office. Uh, and maybe it's because we've been reporting on the bridge crisis so much. But nothing stood out to me as particularly illuminating. Am I wrong? Yeah, I you know you heard the the leader say in the in the last half um, that there was a lot said over four hours, but um, we've been covering every little bit of this along the way, and there weren't a ton of revelations. There were some things that came out in questions. The the lawmakers submitted a, a batch of questions to the director uh, that they filled out ahead of time and submitted. And uh, Ted, we were talking about this just before coming on the show. One of the things that came out during that meeting is that they were ready to rebuild the bridge. And there was, um, with these broken pins underneath it. We should it, say just the deck. The, deck, the, the deck, top of it. Yes. Right. Just with the, the part top you drive of it, on. Right. Uh, over these pins that they that later, they eventually found were broken. Um, and they thought that, that those pins had 25 years left in them before they would need to be replaced. Lo and behold... You know, we all know the story now. The engineer finds the broken pin, and here we are with a, a shutdown bridge. Yeah, I, th I think I agree. There was no holy cow, you know, uh, Jacques moment where we learned something new. But I do think, you know, if you step back, I think the process did uh, illuminate um, some, uh, like you're saying, about the inspection process, this bu business with the pigeon debris, where it's not being removed. So they're not actually inspecting all of the bridges in full because sometimes there's too much pigeon debris in the way, so they just keep moving. Um, and, and this business where the rods, the pins, the thing that broke um, was expected to last another 25 years. They were going to spend, they have been spending $78 million on the top yeah. of the bridge under the assumption those pins were fine, everything underneath was fine, and they weren't. I think that actually, it may not answer the question about the Washington Bridge, but it's actually made it bigger than just the Washington Bridge and said, well, does RIDOT truly have a handle on the condition of all of Rhode Island's bridges, which again, are, remain in some of the worst condition in the country. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think uh, if nothing else, the entire debacle, but also the oversight hearing has put renewed scrutiny on inspections writ large, mm -hmm. uh, how they work. And uh, you know, if you're a Rhode Islander who just even has sort of a surface level notion as to what's going on. No pun you're, intended. Yeah. <laughs> you're probably not feeling too confident about the state's inspection. And maybe that's unfair, but it, that's the feeling you get about what's going on here. Absolutely. I, I think that's just the biggest question that I have about all the bridges that are in critical condition. You know, it's one, they have these sort of three monikers, which is good, fair, and, and poor. I shouldn't say critical, poor. Mm -hmm. um, the Washington Bridge was in poor Structurally condition. Structurally deficient, I Structurally think is how they deficient. define and, it, yeah. And there are just dozens and dozens of other bridges that have the exact same designation as the Washington Bridge right now. And we are, we as Rhode Islanders are relying on these inspectors to say, yes, this one is okay, after a big fallout on, on one that yeah, was just poor. To, just to put a period on the end of that sentence, exactly. You know, I, I've been thinking up to now, well, you know, they, they were planning, they were in the process of spending seven, eight million dollars to fix this bridge. They were just a little too late, right? And it, it got it got deteriorated a little faster, but they were almost there. They were fixing it. Right. So to find out that project wasn't going to do anything about this problem and that they assumed these these pins, these rods were fine. Um, that that was definitely new information to me that cast all of this in a little bit of a different light. Let's shift gears here because I want to make sure we get to this before we run out of time. Pawtucket Soccer Stadium. Let's bring up a Bloomberg article that ran. This ran this week, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and not a great 
national headline at all on this project. Uh, and it took off on social media. The headline is Rhode Island draws eye-popping yield on municipal debt, a new soccer arena. And the first sentence of the article, AKA the lead says, taxpayers are paying dearly to bring a pro sports team back to the faded industrial city of Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Let's turn to our Tidewater correspondent, <laughs> Eli Sherman. This feels like a real bad look for Rhode Island. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely a bad look. Anytime that you have a national paper, um, Bloomberg, looking at Rhode Island and saying, essentially, you guys are getting hosed here, is not a great look at all because everyone around the country is also reading that story. But explain I remember, the ho- explain the host part. Well, you know, with the amount of time that we have getting into debt financing, it, <laughs> it could take some time. But basically, what they're saying is that. Rhode Island is putting up an exorbitant amount of money that is going to ultimately be backed by Rhode Island taxpayers. And a portion of that is going to come from the area that where the stadium is. But the people who are buying these bonds, people who do this for a living and they know how to make money, they feel pretty confident that if for whatever reason, if the if the stadium fails, if the team doesn't play more than a season, that the cost of those bonds is going to be covered by Rhode Island no matter Boy, what. Boy, this sounds real familiar. Well, this is the thing, and you know, you, you hesitate. It's almost a cliche to raise 38 studios, but it, you know, Rep. David Place brought it up when he saw the Bloomberg story. It's that whole question of uh, going around the uh, constitutional way to levy debt, which is ask the voters in November, do you want this project or not? Just as with 38 Studios, it seems that officials knew putting this on the ballot was not going to be a good idea. So they go around, they put it through a redevelopment agency. They 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 have a, a sort of opaque bond structure. And now when you have someone like Bloomberg who looks at it closely, they said the yield on these bonds for the state, soccer stadium is the equivalent of a 14% yield. Think of, we're all thrilled our savings accounts can now get four percent 14 percent when you compare it to a taxable bond um so this is just you know it is in some ways very simple you know when we take out a mortgage what is our interest rate how much am i paying to borrow this money rhode island and pawtucket are paying a ton of money to borrow this to borrow this money to build the soccer stadium um and it there's no guarantees about how this works out and real quickly you know ted and i've been covering this since 2019 (laughs) when we were sitting in pawtucket city hall when they announced it And Bloomberg doesn't care about the politics, as Ted noted earlier today. We cover it day to day. And and the reality is, is that they're just looking at the numbers and they're saying this is a risky deal. This is a poor deal for Rhode Island. And I should say, Eli had a story last week that laid out these numbers. um, And and other reporters have, too. Patrick Anderson's done a nice job with the Projo. But there is something, Tim, about seeing a national outlet that, frankly, wrote it a little more harshly than the reporters here in Rhode Island have because they have the confidence to do so. Don't even think about going to Bloomberg. But uh, (laughs) really, 20 seconds here. Was 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 there a state response to the Bloomberg article? Did they... they, they did have one, one quote from a spokesperson in, in Pawtucket who, who gave a response that we've heard a lot over the years, which is that they feel very confident that this is going to generate economic activity and be a good thing for Pawtucket. All right. One to keep watching. Eli Sherman, Ted Nisi, thanks for joining us. If you missed any of it, it's on WPRI.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. You can scan that code on the left-hand side of your screen. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.